Have you ever felt that way, that you're not good enough? I think we all have. We all have at some point in our lives. For some, maybe we feel that way all the time. I think it starts at a, at a very young age. If you have older siblings and you want to go hang with them, you want to tag along, what do they say? You're not old enough or you're not cool enough to hang with us. So then you, you go to Hershey Park and you want to ride the roller coaster there. But the attendant says, yeah, you've got to be a Twizzler, but you're still a Reese's peanut butter cup. You're not big enough. So then you're in school, and with every failing test or quiz, what's being said there? Well, there was, there was a standard, and you fell short of it. You try out for the sports team. Just the, the, the word tryout alone means not everybody's going to make the team. The coach is looking for some athletes with a particular skill level. And if you don't have it, you run the risk of being cut. So you try your hand at dating. And you're going you're gonna to ask out this girl, and she shoots you down. Assuming she's looking for a boyfriend actively at that time, she must have a, a set of criteria, and you did not meet that criteria. Then you graduate from high school, and you want to go on and get yourself some higher learning, a little higher education. Well, with every non-acceptance letter you get from a college or university, what are they saying? We have certain qualifications for this school. You didn't meet them. So then you're an adult and you get out into the workforce and companies have things called performance reviews. They may not call it that, but that's really what it is. Basically saying, uh, yeah, we're paying you money to occupy the position that you have. We have certain expectations. Here they are. And if you don't meet them, you're not good enough at least in that particular area of your job. Well, we all want to be good enough. I mean, nobody's trying to sandbag. We all want this. But, a, but another name for, for, or another word really for being good enough would be sufficient. That's what I want to talk to you about today is sufficiency. That's our word. See, in this Advent series, we've been saying that we can be still because God is still sovereign. God is still supreme. God is still Savior. Well, today we're saying God is still sufficient. And what's interesting about the word is, is this sufficiency thing has already been covered in each of the three previous sermons prior to this one. It may not have been stated explicitly, but the reality is if you say God is sovereign, well, what? He's sufficiently sovereign. If he's Savior... He's a sufficient Savior. So it's kind of like this umbrella term that if there's anything true of God, well, he's sufficiently that thing because he has all sufficiency. So at this point, we probably need a definition. What, what, what does it mean to be sufficient? It means good enough, adequate, to meet the needs of a particular situation. And as I delved into the, the definition of uh, sufficiency, one of the synonyms was satisfactory. And I thought, yeah, th that's true, right? Because if something is sufficient for the task at hand, then it means it's satisfactory at meeting that particular need. 
But then I started thinking, well, if we're saying that, that Jesus is sufficient, is it right to say Jesus is satisfactory? That doesn't sound quite right. You know, it sounds like Jesus is just all right. Well, Jesus is not just all right, despite what the Doobie Brothers might have to say on the matter. See, at least you guys laughed at that last night. It must have been a younger crowd last night. I think I lost them with a Doobie Brothers reference. But, yeah, Jesus, uh, Jesus is satisfactory? Uh, I don't know. How about I flip it a little bit and I say, Jesus is satisfying. Now I bet you're with me. You're like, yeah, that sounds more in line with the magnitude of our God, that Jesus is satisfying. So think about the scenarios that I just presented. Passing a test in school, making the team, getting the boyfriend or the girlfriend, uh, getting into the college of your choice, performing well on the job. Well, what are those things? They are desires that we have. But what I showed you is that those desires often go unsatisfied. You fail the test. The girl shoots you down. You don't get into the college or university of your choice. This is a world of unsatisfaction. So today, I'm going to add to our alliteration. We're kind of fans of alliteration around here. It's a literary device where a series of words all begin with the same letter. And we're operating with the, the letter S, saying God is still sovereign. God is still supreme. God is still Savior. Well, today I'm saying God is still sufficiently satisfying. So what I'm saying is my singular solution that I will state with simplicity is that the sacred Savior supernaturally supplies sufficient satisfaction for what our sinful souls are searching for. I love alliteration. I had to flex a little there, all right? It only took 20 minutes to write that sentence, but I think it was worth it. See, we all have, um, we all have God-given desires, desires for basic things like food and water, and we have, we have sexual desires. We have, we have a desire to own a home, perhaps. We have a desire to uh, have a particular career or, or have fulfillment in our lives or purpose. These are all good and wholesome desires to have, and it's completely appropriate to crave satisfaction from those desires. And just days away from Christmas, I think we have other desires. I bet you got your eye on that one particular Christmas present that you're hoping to get. It's okay. It's all right. I got something. I'm hoping to get these truly wireless earbuds. They're like super nice, this light blue color, 11-hour battery life. Like, I can't wait to get these earbuds. But we are just days away from the most dissatisfying day of the year. You know what day that is? December 26th, the day after, okay? Literally, the day after when people are dissatisfied with their presence. See, even during a pandemic, I think stores will be open and the busiest department will be what? The return department. You got people standing in line with their thing that they didn't want to get, you know, it's the pink bunny suit from Aunt Clara you're hoping to return, at least exchange for store credit. Or, or it just wasn't the right color, or, you, you know, wasn't the right size, or you didn't like it. But whatever the reason, you left Christmas Day being kind of 
unsatisfied, and so you're hoping to get some satisfaction by returning it and getting something that will get the job done. But today, I want to look beyond the basic desires we have for for food and water and, and material goods. I want us to consider ultimate desires. And, and where we find ultimate satisfaction from those ultimate desires. So again, just days before Christmas, we're going to go in our Bible to a place that might surprise you a little bit. We're going to go to John chapter 6. New Testament, Gospel of John. While you're turning there, let me say a few things. Uh, this, is, this is not a text that I think is traditionally preached right around Christmas time. Uh, this is a very popular chapter. It's a very long chapter. Uh, and I would make the case that this is one of the most controversial chapters in all the Bible. Why? Because you have Calvinists and non-Calvinists arguing over it when it comes to the doctrine of election. You have Roman Catholics and some Protestants arguing over it, uh, whether or not it, the connection that it has with the Lord's Supper which ironically we are celebrating today. I'm not going to get into those rather large and complicated topics today, but what I want to do at this point is I want to show you that this text is entirely appropriate for Christmas time. See, in the chapter, uh, Jesus over and over again uses a particular phrase, come down from heaven or came down from heaven, a reference to what? His incarnation. When God became a man. What we're celebrating this time of year. The phrase is used seven times in this chapter. John 6.33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven. Verse 44, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42, the Jews saying here, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Over and over again, ad nauseum does he say this. This is an incarnational passage to be sure. Not to mention the amount of times he speaks of being sent by the Father. John 6, 29, believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Verse 57, as the living father sent me. A thoroughly incarnational passage to be sure. So I want to look at just a portion of it. We're going to focus in on verses 22 through 35. If you're able to stand here at the church and at home, we do that to honor God, the hearing of his word. John chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. Word of God says this. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. 
When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The word of God. You may be seated. Thank you. So, verse 22 says, on the next day. So something significant must have happened the day before, and that is the case. It was the, the very uh, famous accounting of Jesus feeding 5,000 people, and it was 5,000 plus. Uh, some commentators think it was upwards of 25,000 people that were present there who he fed with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. And when you do that sort of miracle for so many people, you better believe they're going to come seeking you out looking for more. And that's exactly what happens. In verse 25, they go seeking after Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Kind of an odd question, I think, which Jesus totally ignores. Uh, he, he, he doesn't always answer everybody's question. He, people, people pose questions to him. Sometimes he totally ignores it or he, he gets to the question behind the question. And that's what he's doing here. There's, there's a motive that they have and, and Jesus is going to expose it in the next verse. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus is saying here, you have a desire it's not a very lofty desire. It's a rather base desire, in fact. You're not seeking me out because I am the all-sufficient one to, that can meet the needs, the, uh, the longings of your soul as the all-sufficient Messiah. That's not why you're here. You're just hungry. And what should have happened on that mountainside is those multitudes were eating they shouldn't have just devoured the food saying, oh, this is great. We were hungry. Now we're getting food. We're going to be satisfied, you know, and just sit back and relax. What I think should have happened is they should have been eating this food with their eyes fixed on Jesus, thinking, who is this man that can feed so many of us with a little boy's lunch? But they missed it. They missed it because their base desire for the lesser thing caused them to miss that which is greater. They were focused on the product 
not the person that produced the product. They're, they're here treating Jesus like some kind of divine Santa Claus. This is the classic loving the gift more than the gift giver. And I think this happens even today. People today will treat Jesus just like they do Santa. Why is Santa so beloved? Really, why do kids love Santa? They don't love Santa for Santa. They love Santa for what he brings. Kids don't have a burning desire to walk through the mall, sit on some stranger's lap, uh, and show him grandfatherly affection. No, they want to rattle off their wish list. I know some adults would be willing to sit on a stranger's lap if they thought it would get him a PS5. Imagine a scene where a kid runs into Santa on Christmas Eve, right there in the living room. Santa comes down the chimney. Kid's like, Santa, you got my Nerf gun? No, no Nerf guns. In fact, I got nothing. What do you mean you got nothing? What you, you can just get yourself back up that chimney before I call the cops. You know? Beat it, old man. And get your hands off the cookies, too. Cookies are for closers. The transaction that we have is you provide the presents, we give you the cookies and the milk. That's how this goes. You show up empty-handed, man, you can hit the bricks. But we're willing to put up with Santa and his completely works-righteous system of rewarding good behavior. Why? Because he delivers. He's got terrible theology, this guy. He comes through with the goods, right? But if the stuff goes away, so would he. And if he continued with his antics of watching us while we're sleeping, and he knows when we're awake, we're calling the cops on this creeper. We are. We are. No, we put up with his voyeurism year-round because there's a big payoff come December. You tell me this isn't true. That's why kids seek out Santa. It's what he gives. And that's exactly what's going on with this crowd. They're not, they don't want Jesus. They, they want the bread. They don't love him for him. They, they love what he can do for them. Let me, let me challenge you with this thought. There's a, there's a preacher, he's very prolific out there on the internet. I, I'm a fan. He's a very polarizing fellow. Some people love him. Some people not so much. Uh, he, he pushes the envelope at times, uh, which he has admitted to. Uh, his name's Paul Washer. Paul Washer is a fiery preacher. I uh, love his passion. He's telling the story of counseling a woman one time who was struggling with her salvation. And she comes to him, and she's like, I just don't know if I'm saved or not. I, I, I've repented. I just don't know that I've repented enough. I believe. I'm not sure I'm believing enough. I just don't know that he has saved me. And they're having this back and forth. And, and I get the, the sense that, that Paul Washer was getting a little frustrated with her. Because at one point he says, repent and believe even though he sends you to hell. Because he's worthy. Do you just repent and believe in order to get something? Repent and believe because he's worthy. I was like, man, this dude is hardcore. There's some counseling for you right there. But isn't it true? Isn't it true that we should come to Jesus for Jesus? Not, not for what he does for us. We should come to him even if he did nothing for us. 
What's happened this past year with COVID? COVID has stripped us of so many things that we love, especially as Americans here in the West. Our personal freedoms, right? You know, those are taken away, many of them are regulated, and we're kicking back. We're, we're fighting back against this. You know, you got your mask? Got to have your mask. I'm looking at a bunch of masked people, you know? We, we got to have our... How many times, if I had a nickel for every time I got out the car, walked to the store, realized, uh-oh, no mask, back to the car to get it. I've had to do that over and over again. Make sure you don't have a gathering more than 10. Stay six feet apart. I was in the store the other day, and, and there was an aisle in front of me, and the product I needed was right there. But I looked down, and there's an arrow pointing this way. Evidently, it's a one-way uh, aisle. Nobody's around. I'm like, who is walking around to the other aisle that goes that way, like we're downtown or something, and then you come back down here to get... I'm like... Forget your stupid sticker. This is America. I'm like, this is America. I go over and I grab the, the thing. You know, I'm like, I, I don't like that. I'm, I'm complaining the entire time. Like, what is going on here? So many things have been taken from us. Sports. We went months without any sports. You know, people were going nuts. Talk about one of the hardest jobs in the world is to be a sports center anchor day after day when there's nothing happening. Those are taken away. They're back now, but empty arenas, empty stadiums. It's just not the same. I was in the mall, the movie theater, big iron gate there. It's Christmas time. Where's the blockbuster movie? Let's go. Let's go check out a movie. Can't do it. Going out to eat? You want to go out to lunch after service today? Good luck. You can't. And I just wonder, I just wonder if God is not asking us Am I not enough for you? Do you need all those other things? Why, can't you walk down the other aisle? You, you got me. You got Jesus, okay? Just do, do the thing. Why are you getting so agitated over these other things? Seems like you love them more than you love me. And I wonder if God is not probing our hearts, saying, am I not enough or do you need all those other things? Is not Christ enough? We should love him and worship him purely for who he is. Even if he provides nothing for us, even forgiveness of sins. I think that's the point that Paul Washer is, is trying to make with that woman. We love him for him. We come to him because he's worthy. Let's keep reading. Verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now Jesus uses the word work here, and it catches their ears. Their ears are perked up because they hear work, and they say to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And, and this really resonates with me. I, I am just like these people. There, there's a, there's a, a person who dwells within me. I don't talk a lot about this guy, but, but he lives within. He's kind of a problem. I've given him a name. I call him Little Mr. Works Righteousness. Let me describe him for you. All right, he's, he's a blue-collar guy. He's a, he's a laborer, very hardworking. He's got the overalls on, work gloves, work boots, hard hat, uh, tool belt around his waist, 
no job too big for little Mr. Works Righteousness. And he loves to-do lists. Give him a long to-do list where he can tackle them one by one and scratch them off. He loves that. And, and he's always carrying a time card around, and he's always listening for that word, work. He's like Siri and Alexa, but the word that triggers him is work. And he's got his time card ready to punch in at any moment. But little Mr. Works Righteousness dwells within me, but I don't think I'm alone. Maybe he dwells within you as well. I think he's here in the crowd. I think he's within these folks. When Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, they hear the word work, little Mr. Works Righteousness is awakened, and that prompts the question, what must we do to be doing the works of God? See, in our fallen humanity, I do think there's something within us that we think, if I just put in enough work, if, if I just work hard enough, I can get the job done. American ingenuity, it's what it is. And that's why the Bible has to constantly and consistently body little Mr. Works righteousness. God in his word is steady killing him all the day long, but he keeps coming back. He's relentless. He's like the Terminator. Keeps coming back because we just don't get it. We think our righteous acts, our law keeping, our uh, church attendance, our fervent prayers, our Bible reading, our baptism, our partaking of communion, our rituals, our sacrifice, our effort, our hard work will somehow earn us a right standing before a holy God. And God is trying to convince us and little Mr. Works Righteousness, you can't. You can't. Think about the video that I showed you. It's called Not Good Enough. Uh, artist's name is Flame. And I watched a video where he, he talked about like, what he was trying to get through with the song, kind of the inspiration behind it. And, and he said, he's like, it was just a moment of honesty. He's just, I just, I know, I, he's got good theology. And you, and you can hear it in the lyrics if you, if you saw it. It was in there. But he's just like, you know, I, I just don't feel good enough for God. And, and where does that type of thinking come from? It comes from a mindset that says, am I doing enough? What do I need to do to be pleasing? Am I good enough? Our performance, our work, that's where the focus is at. Am I doing enough? Am I good enough? And this totally fits in with the theology of little Mr. Works Righteousness. He gobbles it up. He loves it. This is what he's all about. So let's just say, let's just say there were 10 things that you need to do to be saved. 10 things, okay? There isn't, but let's just say it. Now, through some amazing amount of effort, a, a miracle, you white-knuckle it out and you accomplish all 10. Let's just say that. Would you not have reason to boast? You, 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 would, you could strut right into heaven, be like, I'm here. Heaven is now heaven because I'm here. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for that sinful group over there, but I'm not with them. I am perfect. I've accomplished it through my own effort. And the scriptures, again, where is boasting? It is excluded. There is no boasting before God. So we all know that that person doesn't exist. You know, that's, that's why we have phrases like, nobody's perfect, 
which I just love that phrase because it's like the understatement of the millennium. Yeah, no kidding, nobody's perfect. Like, those words aren't worth the breath that it takes to push them out your mouth. I mean, it means nothing. Nobody's perfect. No kidding. We all know it. We know we all fall short. The problem is we think this is perfection. I don't know. Maybe I'm right around here. The reality is you're on the floor. You're way down here. But we don't know where we are on the scale, and we wonder, where's the bar? Where's the cutoff? Because somebody would say, given my scenario here, I've done five. I've done five of the ten. I wonder if that's good enough. Well, they start thinking, in grade school, if there was a spelling test and I missed five of the words, that's 50%, but that's an F. But somebody else will come along and they'll say, well, I got seven out of ten. Yeah, that's a, that's a solid C right there. Maybe that's good enough. But let me show you why this thinking is so faulty. The bad news is, you know what the standard is? 100%. It is the 10 out of 10. You need an A+, everything else is an F. That's the bad news. The bad news is, you're not good enough, and neither am I. None of us are. We all got the big fat F right there, big F, red Sharpie. (gasps) Not supposed to use those anymore. But that, this is the gospel, basically. We're all a bunch of big, fat losers. Jesus, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Come to him. Join the winning team. I mean, I don't know that the gospel's ever been presented that way. Maybe this is a first. But, but it's about him. We're, we're not going to measure up. You're just not. So the good news is Jesus himself, he has a report card. You know what he got? A plus, baby. 100% cross the board. Did you ever see the, the movie A Christmas Story? I'm sure you have. If you haven't, where have you been? Okay, they put it on a 24-hour loop at this time of year. I love it. I think it's a classic. Um, if you remember the scene where, where Ralphie's given the assignment to write the theme on what he wants for Christmas, and he's very excited, and he writes this paper, and, and he goes to hand it in to the teacher, and, and he's, as he's handing it in, he, he dreams in his mind what, what it's going to be like when she, she grades it. And you see her in this big stack of papers, and she's taking them down. Ugh, F. You know, another one, F. Another one, F. And then she gets to Ralphie's, and she's like, oh, Red Rider BB gun. She's like, oh, you know, this is the greatest thing she's ever read. And goes over to the, to the chalkboard, Ralphie, A plus, plus, plus. Remember the scene, right? Well, that's Jesus. We're the stack of Fs on the desk, basically. That, that, that is what's going on there. But when you come to Jesus by faith, you know what happens? sticking with my convoluted Christmas story analogy here, it's as if the the teacher swaps the papers. Jesus takes the F, you get the A+. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. See, we always talk about Jesus dying for us, amen, true, but he lived for us as well. We get his righteousness when we come to him by faith. When we are justified before God through what he has done through Jesus Christ on that cross, that's, Jesus takes the sins, that's the F, we get the A plus in return, the very thing we need to enter into God's presence. This is the good news of the gospel.
And so we need to tell little Mr. Works righteousness that dwells within, sir, you have one job and one job only. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Because that's what Jesus says to the crowd in verse 29. He answered them, this is the work of God. Notice work, one singular, one work that you believe in him whom he has sent. And John is working towards the culmination of this gospel. And in John chapter 20, he tells you why he wrote it. I love this. John 20, verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may work your way to God. I'm just making sure you all are still with me. Glad nobody amened that. That would have been awkward. No, these are written so that you may believe, it says. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. It is coming to Christ. Let's see how the crowd responds. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? If if this is not the what have you done for me lately, I don't know what is. I mean, um, he just fed you yesterday with like nothing? <laughs> you know, they, and they go on. They say, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. He, that's Moses, gave them bread from heaven to eat. A reference back to Exodus 16. These Jews are saved from bondage in Egypt. They're out wandering the wilderness, complaining. Hey, we had food to eat in Egypt. You brought us out here to die of starvation. Complaining like we do. Well, God doesn't strike them down. Instead, he provides for them. And he gives them bread from heaven called manna. And I think their point here is they're saying, yeah, that happened every day, Jesus. Every day, fresh manna from heaven. You fed us yesterday, but guess what? I'm hungry today, so make with the bread, okay? That's what they're saying. They're treating Jesus like this never-ending bread dispensary. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Do you see the distinction that Jesus is making? He's talking about bread from heaven and true bread from heaven. And they say to him, sir, give us this bread always. So I think they're seeing the distinction to some degree, but they're not quite grasping it. Very reminiscent of the woman at the well, just two chapters prior when Jesus spoke to her about water. Here he's saying in John 6, there's bread from heaven and true bread from heaven. And then in John 4, it was water and living water. John 4, 13, Jesus said to the woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. See, they both say the same thing. Did you catch it? The woman at the well says, Give me the water. Okay, you're you're making some kind of distinction between two different kinds of water. Give me the water. She says, give me the water. The crowd says, all right, give us the true bread from heaven. 
but their understanding is still not full and they need a little illumination. So now Jesus comes out just plainly. Verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the first of the seven I am statements of Jesus, hearkening back to Exodus 3.14, when Moses appears before the burning bush. I'm going to go to Pharaoh. Who shall I say sent me? I am. Tell him I am has sent you. Jesus claiming that for himself, a clear claim to deity. He says, I am that bread. This isn't about physical bread. This is about the eternal God come down from heaven who gives life to the world. And the parallels between John 6 and John 4 are really remarkable. I'm not sure I, I knew them prior to this week. What happens? Jesus is using everyday physical things like bread and water, eating and drinking to teach one transcendent truth. Look to Jesus, come to him, eat and drink, consume him, take him in. All metaphors for believing. In verse 40, he says, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. But the parallels don't stop there. Because the water that Jesus gives and the bread of life that came down from heaven, they're both utterly satisfying. John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. John 6, 35, Jesus combines the two. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst what is he doing? He's pointing, he's taking their gaze off bread that you just bake and eat in a physical sense, and he's pointing them to him. He says, this is about me. I am the satisfier. Seek me out. Come to me. Believe and come with nothing in your hand. I was reminded about the a number of passages where the scriptures speak about coming to the Lord to find satisfaction. One of my favorite chapters, Isaiah 55, is just loaded. First three verses, uh, here's what it says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not what? satisfy. There's our word. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And then this same John in the book of Revelation, last chapter in your Bible, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The consistency of God's word is truly amazing. All, from Genesis to Revelation, what is God doing? He's inviting, even beckoning guilty sinners like you and like me to come to him over and over again. Come to me, come to me, come to me, is what he's saying. 
And usually at the end of a sermon, we, there's, there's application. You, you, you must make application. We've read this. All right, now what, what, what do I need to do? What, what's the action? And, you know, and I do think there is an application here. I don't think this text is really any different. However, the action item for us, I think, today is to rest. To rest. It, it sounds like an oxymoron. Here's, here's the action you need to take. Rest. Right? I'll remind you that napping is a verb in the English language. It is. So I'm saying, rest in Christ. Rest in him. I know it was just not too long ago. I was talking about working to produce good fruit once you are saved. But, but, but we're, we're to rest in what he has done, knowing that we're not contributing in any way to what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We rest in, in who he is and what he has done for us. So I think the Christian should say, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I've eaten and drank. I know him. I believe, and by believing, I have life in his name. Despite all my problems, and 2020 has no shortage of those, but despite all the problems that you are facing, if you are in Christ, your greatest problem has already been dealt with, death. In the death of Christ, death has died. It is no longer death to die for the believer. And this world can throw a lot at us. A, a year like 2020, who knows what 2021 has in store? We all tend to think, well, somehow December 31st to January 1, we can put all this behind us. I don't know why you would make that assumption. Honestly, you have no idea what the future holds. Pastor Ben spoke about that not too long ago. But whatever comes your way, you can have peace and you can be content. Why? Because you know the one for whom you were created, the all-sufficient satisfier. So now we, we come to the Lord's Supper. And uh, what's happening here is, is this bread and drink symbolically points us to that satisfying Savior. They point us to Christ, his birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the fact that he's coming again. Now, if you know John 6 and some of the controversy that I talked about, people want to tie John 6 to the Lord's Supper. Some people are like completely separate the two. Some people say, no, they join together. Some people say, eh, sort of. I don't know. Uh, it's very complicated. Um, I tried to not get bogged down with it this week because that wasn't the focus of this message. But here's what I would say. I would say that Jesus, he used the language of eating and drinking to illustrate the intimacy that we have with him when we embrace him as Savior by faith. I think it's, that's what's going on there. So if that describes you, if you have come to Christ, you've turned from sin and turned to him, we invite you to partake. If that does not describe you, you're here, you just kind of stumbled in, you wanted to go to church because it's near Christmas time, and you're, but you're not a believer, you're kind of a, a seeker of sorts, welcome. We're so glad you're here. But you need to know that the scriptures, well, on the strength of what the scriptures say, I would advise you uh, to abstain from this. This is for people who claim the name of Christ. So our servers are in